is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew 22, we're going to begin our reading at verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto them, him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, <clears throat> we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and he said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, You de err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But it's touching the resurrection of the dead. Have ye not read that that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and the great commandment. 
And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth to ask him any more questions. Tonight... We begin just with the preamble of the Lord of the commandments. The first two verses of Exodus 20, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation, what day it must have been out there in the desert of Arabia. It was some 60 to 90 days after the exodus out of Egypt. There was thundering and lightning as symbols of God's majesty and holiness. And God at Sinai gives his people his law. What an awesome event that was. In fact, careful preparations had to be made. In Exodus 19, verse 6, we read, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That people that God in his sovereignty had chosen as his peculiar people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, the Lord would work a mighty work within them. So not only giving them an external law on tablets of stone, but even more important, what their circumcision was supposed to point to, the circumcision of their hearts. And why would the Lord do this mighty work in order that they would manifest God's glory? That was the point of their being redeemed from Egypt. That was the point of their life. And now the question comes to us in this applicatory sermon, is that your desire? Is that your goal and your purpose in your studies, boys and girls, or young people? In your work, in the office, factory, farm, in the house, in the homework, going on to glorify God, to manifest his glory. And so Moses set bounds around the mountain, didn't he? 
The people must sanctify themselves. They must wash their clothes and be ready on the third day. The people might not go to the Lord, nor even touch his mountain, or they would be put to death. And there on that third day, the mountain was altogether on smoke because God, the King of Kings, descended upon that mountain in fire. And the mountain quaked and trembled. Then suddenly the voice of Jehovah resounds in the ears of his people. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God had chosen and God would now fashion and save his people to be his people, a kingdom of priests. And how were they supposed to now show their thankfulness for that? How do you and I show our thankfulness for our redemption? And therefore we have in Exodus chapter 20 and we have again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the love of obedience that is set before us. God has chosen and God saves and fashions us to be his peculiar people, to be a kingdom of priests. How must we tell God how thankful we are for his great deliverance of us? And the answer is, by obeying his law, and praying. That is how this third section of the catechism is divided. How do we show our thankfulness? A great thankfulness. Are you thankful for what God has done for you and for me and for his church? Set before us in the law and then the prayer afterwards in that third section is the guide for true thankfulness. Two weeks ago, we looked at the nature of good works. Boys and girls, can you remember the three definitions of what are good works? Because obviously, many churches have forgotten it. Good works proceed from faith are done according to God's law and are done for God's glory. And having set forth that definition of what are good works, now the question naturally asks then, okay, if it proceeds from faith and is done according to God's law, what is God's law? So notice with me the theme, Oh, how love I thy law. The title of my sermon, of course, comes from Psalter number 42, that beautiful chorus where we repeat over and over, Oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how love I thy law. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. How I love thy law, notice with me, first of all, the law that was given. Notice, second of all, the introduction to that law. And then thirdly, the purpose 
of the law. The law that was given. What is the origin of the law? Where did it derive from? Well, there was a law for God's people as he created them. In Adam's heart, he knew his calling to love his God. And also then to love that creature that God gave him, namely his wife. Instinctively, he knew God's will. He knew what was pleasing to God. And he was able to live accordingly. But because of the fall in heaven, because of the temptation of Satan, he fell. He rebelled. He chose the lie of Satan over against the truth of God. And that knowledge of God's law was lost, although some of it remained in the conscience and remains in the conscience of every man, woman, and child. So that, as we read in the scriptures, even the Gentiles do by nature the things contained in the law. Instinctively, in the conscience, there is a knowledge still there of what is good and what is wrong. But that conscience is not dependable because that conscience often is hardened. Even as Pharaoh hardened his heart. And many reprobate in the church. When they hear the word, the sharp word of God, they also will harden themselves against the gospel and against God. And so after those 400 years of living in wicked Egypt, generations grew up and died, and that knowledge of the law was lost. And so at Sinai, the kingdom comes, and its citizens are told how they are to live. What is their life to be? What is the shape of their life? And so the law was given in Ten Commandments. What grace, what grace, that God came to his redeemed people and he said, okay, I redeemed you and now I set you free. You decide what's best for yourself. No, he redeemed them from Egypt and he says, now I'm going to show you what is good, what is pleasing in my sight, in what ways you will be blessed. Blessed in the way of obedience, chastised and cast out in the way of disobedience. We need that law. As David said, I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. By nature, strangers to God, enemies of God, by grace made his friends, his children, his citizens. He comes and he teaches us. That law came first in the hearing of God's people as his voice thundered from the mountains. But later Mo Moses was taken up into the mountain in order that God might inscribe his law upon tablets of stone. What a gift. What a gift God's law is. That's why the psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. 
because just as on a ship one needs a compass to know where the ship is headed and where it must be headed, and it needs a rudder there to follow that compass, so also we as God's sheep need a guide to lead us. In the original, the law has two different words, names, Thorah, which means instruction. God is instructing his little children there on the mountain. But second of all, the other word is nomos, which means law or custom, guide. This is the conduct. So what is the content of that law? And there is a principle in that law. Love God. Love God. That is the principle that the Pharisees, with all their extra laws they made, forgot about. You see, they added law upon law so that really no one would feel so bad if I don't walk any more than so many steps on the Sabbath day, and if I do this and I do that, well, then I've kept God's law, and God ought to be pleased with me. Love me. Why does God demand that of us, his children? And the answer is because he loves himself. Now, you say, that sounds strange. God loves himself. I mean, if that is a case with people, you say, Love others as yourself. But you see, with us, if we are self-centered, and we talked about that this morning, that's bad. That's sinful. Because we are sinful. God loves himself because he is perfect. He is altogether lovely. And as God loves himself, now he comes to his people who are his bride. That's one picture of the church. God comes to his children, just as parents will come to their children today and say, love me. And how do we love our parents? We obey them, and so also our Father in heaven. We obey him because we love him. Love him above all else. That was the purpose of creation when God made human beings to stand in a relationship with him as a friend, he would come and he would walk and talk with them and they would delight in walking with him and walking with him. And as that was the purpose of God in creation, so also, beloved, it is the purpose of God in our recreation. We've been made new creatures. You and I who were dead in sin have been made alive again. You and I who were enemies of God have been made his friends. And so he comes, and his purpose in that is that we might love him as that first of the two summary of the law says, love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love him with all that we are and all that we have. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit regenerates a sinner. 
He gives us a new heart, and so from that new heart, there is a desire. There is a prayer, dim as it might be at times, that God may be known, God may be loved, God may be honored, God may be praised by us, ourselves, that God may be loved and praised and honored by all those who are precious to him, that God may be loved and be acknowledged by all creatures. Love God. And so that principle of the law is divided into two tables, isn't it? In the first table, love for God by our worship of him. And then second of all, love for God in our relationships to one another. That's how we know that we love and we demonstrate that we love God. We read in 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. And then the last two verses of that chapter, 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, but hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loved God love his brother also. Isn't that why also in the admonition that comes in the for communion form, those who are filled with hatred against their brother don't come to the table. Don't come to the table until you resolve that. You go to your brother, you confess your sins together and are reconciled. Then come to the table. So that is the principle, love. Love God. And how do we show that in our everyday life? How, do you, how can you know if a person really loves God? Do they love their wife who is the closest neighbor? Or do they love and submit to their husbands? In our homes, do we love as parents our children and children? Do you love your parents and obey them? In the church, do we love one another and care for one another, pray for one another, admonish one another? Or do we look down our long noses in disdain at this or that person? 
or hold their sins that were done many years ago against them still today. How do I know? How can we know if I, you, love God and how can we know if others love God? What is their conduct like? What are they like in their relationships? Do they honor those in authority over them? Or are they rebellious and cantankerous? The second table of the law shows us, demonstrates to us, the truth of the first commandment. Love. In other words, we don't say to God and we don't say to one another, well, I'll love you if you treat me nice. We don't say, I'll love you if I feel like it. Because feelings come and go, don't they? They are not the standard of whether or not we're going to love God or whether we're going to love one another. Rather, I will love you because I am commanded to, we say to God. And we say to our neighbor, I will love you and I will forgive you and I will be reconciled to you because I love God. A God who reconciled miserable sinners like you and me to himself. Please don't say, well, they really hurt me in the past and so I just can't get over it. What have we done to God? What is our life like? What were those Israelites like in the 40 years wilderness wandering? God chose them to be his people. He made them to be his people. He's fashioning them to be their people. He loves them even though they are often very loveless. So the nature of God's law is, first of all, the principle set forth in Ten Commandments. Why is that important, boys and girls, that you know that there are Ten Commandments? And that's because the number ten is the number of completeness. It's the number of perfectness or fullness there's not nine commandments and there's not an eleventh commandment and you can't add one quite often you hear people say I'd like to add an eleventh commandment God gave ten commandments which describes all of our relationships in relationship to him ten commandments the nature of that law is that it was set forth, written down in stone. And that means it's unchangeable. So culture might change. That does not mean that the church can change with that culture. God, for example, says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The church cannot change the way she treats one another and her view of marriage, and say, well, yes, God hates divorce, but we may still divorce one another, not only if there's fornication, but also if we just don't feel very much together. We've changed. No divorce and remarriage. Marriage is for life. Marriage is between a man and a woman, not a man and a man, and not a woman and a woman. Culture may try to redefine marriage. 
But remember, the law was written in stone. And we can't change it. Thou shalt not commit adultery and take that for every one of those commandments. Keep the Sabbath day holy. We cannot redefine and say, well, Sunday really isn't the day of the Lord anymore in the New Testament. And so we don't have to go to church, not obligated to. There are those who have, even in our church, has said that at once time and had to be corrected. And that is continually being done still today. Notice thirdly, there's ten commandments, number of perfectness. They are written in stone, cannot be changed. And thirdly, mostly those commandments come in a negative way. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, neither shalt thou do this and neither shalt thou do that. Why is that? And that is because we are sinful. Because of that sinful nature, boys and girls often have to hear from their parents, no. No, you won't stay out past 12 o'clock. No, you will not do this. No to this. Because of the sinful nature that is rebellious. I want to do what I want to do. And it's especially if someone tells us not to do it, then even then more so we want to do it. Mostly negative, but put positively, of course, in Christ's summary. Fourthly, God's law is not an arbitrary law. What does that mean? God is not some kind of a tyrant who sits back and says, Now, how can I make life miserable for my people? I'll make this kind of a law and this kind of a law and keep them in check and I'll throw my weight around them. The law is not arbitrary, but it flows from God's own perfections. And as we go through the law, all Ten Commandments, we're going to look at that principle that's behind that law. What attribute of our God is shining forth there and therefore is a guide for how we must live as his children? God's demand, love me. All the other things that are commanded flow from that. Love for God demonstrated in our everyday relationships. That is the law that was given. Written in the hearts, in creation, lost through sin, God graciously again sets it before his kingdom people. And that brings me then to my second point. The introduction to the law. Why do we read those couple verses over and over again? I am the Lord thy God that hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There are those who consider that as an insignificant part of the law. just the way it reads and so okay as we're reading the scripture we read it there are others who say well that only applies of course to Israel they were the ones that were brought out of Egypt and they are the ones to whom the law was given there 
Beloved, it's not insignificant, but it has importance for us. Why? Because that deliverance of God's people out of the land of Egypt is a type. Ah, boys and girls, you've heard that word before, haven't you, in catechism many, many times. The Old Testament types and shadows so that there are people, there are events, there are places that are important in the history of God's people in the Old Testament, but it points forward to the New Testament to a spiritual thing. God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt is a type and every time you and I hear it on Sunday morning, we have to acknowledge we also were far away from the Lord in a wicked place with all kinds of different customs around us. And God delivered us. That is what the church is, separated out from the world, separated unto God. And so as God's people were separated out of wicked Egypt, delivered from the cruel bondage, slavery there, you and I have been delivered out of the world to be God's people. Our hands and our feet not shackled anymore by sin and its power over us but set free, set free so that we are able now to love the Lord and to serve him with our lives. I am the Lord thy God. Do you see in that little introduction of the law, first of all those words, I am? Those are important words. That is the self-revelation of God, the living God, to his people, the God of the covenant. It is a word that identifies <coughs> this God. When Moses says to God, who will I say that is sent me to deliver you out of Egypt? God speaks to him and says, I am that I am. Those are beautiful words, and I want you to think a moment, boys and girls, of the seven sayings of Jesus that are found in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus takes those divine words for himself. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All seven of those beautiful things. Christ deity. So who is the one who gives this law to us? Not a cruel tyrant, despot, but rather the living God. I am the Lord thy God. Let's look at that word Lord a minute because it's in capital letters there. In other words, it is our God saying, I am Jehovah. I am Jehovah, the self-existent one, the everlasting one who changes not, who doesn't need anything. 
And I am the God who gives life to you. I am your covenant God. And that comes out in the next part of it. I am the Lord, Jehovah, thy God. How personal. Not just God out there somewhere that rules over the world and rules over his church, but he is my God. And he is my God because he chose me and took me to himself as his child. And he has established a relationship with me. Look at that phrase that flows throughout the Bible the phrase that describes the covenant, I will be a God unto thee and thou shalt be my people. That beautiful relationship. I stress that. Not some God out there who is a killjoy. Not a God out there who is a tyrant or a despot who just wants to put us in a place. He is a loving father who cares for us, who has saved us, and therefore calls us to live for him. I am the Lord thy God. He has saved us so that we know him as our God. He loves us, he cares for us. He has made us not only his friends so that you and I can have fellowship with him, but his beloved children. He cares for us, and that is why he has given us this law to guide us in our lives. The preamble of the law, that is this introduction, reveals <coughs> the way of deliverance. What do I mean with that? What is the way of our deliverance? <clears throat> I have to behave myself, I have to serve God, and then he'll save me? No. No. Notice, I am the Lord thy God who has brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Notice the relationship. Because we're saved, we are able to live for him. We want to live for him. It's the fruit of our salvation. A law of gratitude, thankfulness, and obedience. That's the hope of God's children. I have saved you. I took you out of the hand of your enemies. I set you free that you might know me and serve me and live for me as my people. In this preamble, God preserves, reveals his power and his mercy, doesn't he? I am your king. And I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Serve me. God makes us his own by his purchase of us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, second of all, that the law is addressed to a special people. 
those of his sovereign particular choice. I am the Lord thy God. I am thine in life and in death. I am thine in troubles that you go through and distresses. I am thine always and forever. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. So what is the significance of this introduction or this preamble to the law? Just as God redeemed Israel out of the land of Egypt, so God has redeemed, delivered you and me. You and me out of the grip of Satan. You and me out of our sin and our guilt. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law that should have fallen upon us. The soul that sinneth it shall die. He is the God that has redeemed us from life through his son Jesus Christ. Who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. So what does that mean for us? The God that has saved us now calls us to serve him. Number one, there is no slavish fear of the law. That's what the Pharisees were trying to work upon Judah and Israel. A slavish fear. You may take so many steps and no, no, no further. You may do this, but you may not do this. No legalism. For our works do not save us. They said that already. No works of righteousness. As much as we've strived, and I gave this morning the example of Luther, through all of his different works of penance and piety, he could not find peace with God. So not a slavish law, a fear of the law, but also not antinomianism which many churches have gone to today. How many Reformed churches still read the law of God each Sunday as a rule, as a guide for his people? Antinomianism. Don't tell me how to spend my Sunday. Don't tell me how to train my children. Don't tell me what I have to do in my marriage. I'm going to be my own judge. That was the period, wasn't it, in the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That brings me to my third point, quickly. The law is, I call it, kingdom boundaries. Here is where the kingdom of priests live. They are up peculiar people set apart from the world, a holy nation. How could God, how could Israel forget that? But she did. She did over and over and over again. Not only during that period of judges when each tribe was on its own, each person doing their own thing, but also how many of the wicked kings, apostate kings, where worship was neglected, where even the doors of the temple were locked, closed up, in disrepair. Boys and girls, you remember that story when Josiah, godly king, has the 
temple repaired and they find the book of the law. It was so lost to the people. And the king has it read to him, and then he has it read to the people, and he weeps. The boundaries set by the law for God's peculiar people were lost. May that not be true today. May that law continue to warn you and me about the enemy's turf. What is the enemy's turf? It's the sinful nature within us. It's the lust of the flesh that we have. It's all those pleasures of the world that are dangling in front of our eyes. And the law comes to you and me and says, be careful where and how you walk because the law opposes sin. Negatively, in the world there is a refusal to recognize that law of God and man continues to establish his own standard of morality. And it is often a standard established by the wish of the majority. Isn't that exactly what is taking place when it comes to sexuality? When it comes to contentment? When it comes to greed? When it comes to abortion? Well, what way are the people looking? What way are they voting? And let's do the will of the people. But that refusal and setting up their own standard isn't only happening out there in the wicked world, it's happening in much of the church. A refusal to recognize the law of God. There's, there are those who say, I'm no, un, no longer under the law, and we're not under the curse of the law, but we surely are underneath the call to obedience. Do as I feel. Anything goes. Think a moment, boys and girls, of another king, Joash. What a beautiful beginning he had underneath the high priest guiding him. But when the high priest died, he turned away from the Lord to idols, and he even killed the son of that high priest who had saved his life. You and I can so easily today be fooled or affected by the idea of morality of this world. We, repeat it, we hear it repeated over and over in the media. And we see those who practice that kind of morality. Not what, what is right with God's eyes, but what is pleasing to the flesh. What makes me feel good. So positively, what is the importance of the law you and I who are regenerated, you and I who are turned away from sin to Christ Jesus, we desire to show our thankfulness to God by obeying his law. By that law, we recognize the greatness of our sins, and in recognizing the greatness of our sin, we see the greatness of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And so the law then is not only an obligation for us, but it is a delight. That's what I want to emphasize. It is an obligation. Boys and girls, you have to obey your parents. That's an obligation. But hopefully you love pleasing your parents. And as God's children, yes, we must obey God, but hopefully it is our delight. Isn't that the theme of that particular song, number 42 in our Psalter? 
oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. Redeemed Christians, not working for our salvation, but walking in the will of God from a loving gratitude. Liberated from the law of sin and death. Our inmost desire is to know God's will. Oh, how love I thy law. We show God our thankfulness for our redemption. Not, not a reluctant obedience. Boys and girls, may your obedience to your parents not be reluctant. I have to do this. Do you remember that parable of the prodigal son? Remember that older brother? Oh, he stayed home. He did what his father did. What was his attitude? All these years I served you, I slaved for you. Hopefully that's not the kind of obedience you boys and girls, young people, have of your parents. And hopefully that's not the attitude that we as God's sons and daughters have to our Father in heaven. The law of God is our companion. It's our guide to instruct to enlighten, to warn, admonish me. What a beautiful boundary. Just as the farmer puts a fence around his field with the cows in it so that they don't step out on the road and get hit with a car, God puts a boundary around his people. He says, dwell here. Stay here in this meadow of grass. Eat and drink and be safe. Amen. Father in heaven, Give us this eagerness, this desire, this delight in thy law so that we are children who delight to serve thee, to live for thee, to be a light so that those around us may see the light of Christ Jesus shining through us, radiated through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.